Welcome back. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Sunday Wire. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. We're streaming out live on the Alternate Current Radio Network and also at 21stCenturyWire.com. Thank you so much for rejoining us. Uh, we're here still in the first hour, and before I uh, introduce our next guest, uh, we've got a couple of things uh, we want to share with you. Uh, the first is our shout poll. Uh, we still have the same shout poll up from last week. Thank you, everybody who voted and commented. Uh, it's pretty much a dead heat, uh, 50%. I think we've had over uh, 600 votes so far. And uh, it's kind of a passive-aggressive rhetorical question. Uh, which U.S. oligarchical uh, political family is uh, more corrupt, the uh, Bushes or the Clintons? Uh, now, some people might laugh at that as a sort of a softball poll, but it's just really kind of st- st- stimulate some debate. But um, that shout poll, it's pretty much running 50-50 right now. Uh, so get in and vote. There's a link to it on the show page and comment as well uh, in that poll. And thank you for everyone who's participated in that poll. Now, um, we're going to play a clip. And this is from the BBC. And uh, before I introduce our next guest, I want you to t- take a close listen to this. And uh, we'll leave the mic open as well, because I'll come in about halfway through. Uh, But go ahead, and this is from the BBC. This is Dr. Marcus Papadopoulos on the BBC just recently, uh, making some very important salient points. Roll it. With me now is Dr. Marcus Papadopoulos, editor of Politics First and an expert on Russia. Uh, Do you think this country is Russophobic? What can I say, first of all, the House of Commons debate uh, demonstrated just how uh, MPs are deluded, uninformed and, quite frankly, biased when it comes to the conflict in Syria. And the only people who are benefiting from that ignorance and delusion are Islamist terrorists in Aleppo and elsewhere in Syria. And we must remember that those Islamist terrorists who are receiving the backing of the West pose a terrible threat to the British public and they want to carry out scores of London-style bombings. But when we talk about Russophobia, certainly uh, Russophobia, racism towards Russia, has a long history in Britain. It goes back even to the uh, Crimean War, and it was there during the First World War, and even during the Second World War. And Boris Johnson's uh, comments, his call for protests outside the Russian embassy, not only contravene diplomatic protocols, but they're, uh, quite frankly speaking, they're very dangerous, because they are encouraging hostility towards uh, the Russian diplomats and uh, the Russian diplomats' families. And if any harm comes to a Russian diplomat, or his or her uh, wife or husband, then Boris Johnson ultimately will be responsible. It was interesting yesterday, just after Boris Johnson made those comments. Okay, so that was the BBC. That was Dr. Marcus Papadopoulos, and he is a a PhD, a doctor, got his doctorate from the University of London, Royal Holloway College, and he's also the founder and editor of Politics First uh, publication. There's a link to that on the show page right now. You can go ahead and see Marcus's work there, and we want to welcome him this week to the Sunday Wire. Hello, Marcus. Good evening, Patrick, and can I say what a pleasure it is to be on your show? No, it's a pleasure. A pleasure is all ours, Marcus, especially uh, because of what's going on right now. Um, I thought you're uh, someone who's very well suited uh, to, to comment on uh, the n- number of things that are going on simultaneously right now in the world. And we're going to talk about the U.S. elections. But just, you know, the, the, the thing about Russia, the Russia hysteria that's going on, I know you've been tracking this for quite some time. Um, it's just gone off the rate. It's it's gone into orbit here in the United States to, to levels that exceed, maybe almost exceed the Cold War 
um, red scare levels. Um, but uh, it's got a little bit of a Hollywood shine to it this time. But um, in the UK, same thing. I saw there was loads of mannequins piled up against the fence of the Russian embassy uh, by a group called the Syria Campaign. Uh, and um, Boris Johnson's comments, I don't know really where to start on this, but, I mean, can you believe that you're seeing this in your lifetime is my question. Can I believe I'm seeing it in my lifetime? Yes, I can. Um, <laughs> I think anyone who is uh, well-versed in uh, Anglo-Russian relations uh, will understand that uh, Russophobia, racism towards Russians, is embedded within Whitehall and within Westminster. And it has been embedded ever since uh, diplomatic relations were established between uh, London and Moscow in the 1500s. And a key element of that racism towards Russians in Britain is a sense of Anglo-Saxon superiority and a view that Slavs, which of course the Russians are, are inherently barbaric and are inherently uh, dangerous and violent. And we have seen this, as I said, from the 1500s all the way through to the Crimean War, the First World War, the Second World War, the Cold War. And uh, it might have dipped during the 1990s under Boris Yeltsin, because, of course, Boris Yeltsin was a, uh, a subservient, treacherous Russian leader, subservient to the West, but it was always there. And now we see Russia under Vladimir Putin having regained a lot of its lost superpower status. And, of course, that uh, combined with how Western power, American power, British power, is on the decline, though it's not going to collapse, it will remain formidable, but nonetheless it is on the decline. If you combine that with how Russia has regained, as I said, a lot of its lost superpower status, we can start to see why there is so much trepidation, so much uh, fear uh, within London and Washington over Russia, because the American and British governments know, understand that Russia is the only country in the world which can uh, challenge uh, Western global hegemony. And, you, you, you know, you mentioned that it goes all the way back to the Crimean War. I think that's really something... And beyond. And beyond. And be, and, and, but especially because that, that, was a, that was a very costly war mm. um, for Britain in terms of men lost and for, probably Ru and for Russia as well. But yes. when Crimea... Uh, what, what I like to call when Crimea uh, was reunified with Russia, um, I know in the West they like to say that, that Russia annexed Crimea, but, but in reality I think it was more of a unification if you look at history. But, mm. um, but that seemed to me that that, that really uh, broke, that was a straw that broke the camel's back in terms of um, Western punditry and, and the political establishment. Um, and so you can see those wounds and those scars go all the way back They've constantly wanted to keep Russia from having any alliances with, with the Ottoman Empire or with anything and in, in breaking the Eurasian sort of land bridge. Geopolitically, that, that was really significant, what happened with the Crimea. And that seems to me the rallying cry still, I hear, Russia annexed Crimea, Russia, Joe Biden or whoever, whoever's repeating this talking point over and over. It's the one thing they cannot accept. 
Well, if I can just very quickly uh, jump in there, uh, Patrick. Of course, the Crimean War was fought by Britain and, of course, France um, to prevent uh, Russia expanding or to prevent a perceived Russian expansion of power into the Black Sea and to the Balkans. And at the same time, London and Paris wanted to enclose Russia. They wanted to keep them away uh, from the Mediterranean, keep them away uh, from the Black Sea. So we can say a cordon sanitaire. Now, fast forward uh, to 2016, a cordon sanitaire uh, is being placed on Russia's western borders in the form of uh, NATO's presence on Russia's western borders and also the American Missile Defense Shield, uh, which went uh, which went active uh, this summer and uh, components of which are in Romania and uh, and Poland. So, um, you know, the, the West has for centuries been attempting to enclose Russia and weaken Russia by placing a cordon sanitaire around it. That's what the Crimean War essentially was about. And that's what we see in Eastern Europe today, but in the form of an American missile defense shield and NATO's presence there. And it, when we say Crimean War, that we're talking about the 19th century for anybody who's listening. Um, yes. not, there was no war for the Crimea two years ago, despite yeah. what uh, all the U.S. networks have said. Um, yeah. I'm, still, I'm, I'm still at pains to find out how, wh- when and where Russia invaded the Ukraine. Um, that, that I'm still looking for because I keep being told this has happened over and over by everybody from the U.S. president all the way down. Um, Russia's invasion of the Ukraine. So, <laughs> when when you hear all these these this sort of stuff, I mean, you mentioned the the, the sort of the ignorance of, of people in Parliament. I, you know, I listened to some of these debates, especially in the eve of the Syria war vote last November, and to see one MP queued up after another from Hillary Benn and uh, and all the rest of that lot in the Labour Party, especially, I was shocked at at people are just getting up and just reading off anything that might resemble facts or that they believe happened or it's just a battle of narratives coming from a hundred different directions mm. i mean what happened to any sort of valid you know validating facts and uh, academic study and you know being very careful with what you say in public that seems to have all gone out the window marcus now well, that uh, debate uh, about a year ago in the House of Commons about whether Britain should start bombing uh, uh, ISIS in Syria uh, reflected the dreadful level of ignorance concerning what is happening in Syria. And it also demonstrated the low caliber in politics at the moment. Um, I mean, you pick up Patrick on Hillary Benn and other people in the Labour Party. Well, for, for most people in the Labour movement, um, that was a very, very depressing debate uh, because um, Labour MPs, by and large, voted for Britain to start bombing ISIS uh, in Syria. And we must never forget that there is a sharp, acute divide between the parliamentary Labour Party and the Labour movement. Most Labour MPs are either to the right of the party or uh, or centre-left, which is very, very similar to the right of the party. And that is down to Tony Blair. When Tony Blair became leader in 1994 of the Labour Party, he changed the selection process for Labour candidates because he, didn't, he wanted to root out left-wing candidates. So prior to Tony Blair... Once a local Labour Party uh, nominated a candidate, 
to stand in a general election. That was it. But after Tony Blair, uh, those candidates had to go before a panel in London made up of right wingers. And of course, uh, that panel would pick out left wingers and they would ensure that only right wing candidates uh, went into the general elections. Um, But, you know, going back to that debate, Yes, I mean, there was no uh, evidence put forward in it. There was no uh, intellect shown. And it was ludicrous from another perspective as well, because we were hearing about how Britain was going to go to war with ISIS. And then the next day on the uh, the, the, the front covers of the newspapers, the Daily Mail, the Sun, the Daily Express, uh, Britain declares war on ISIS. Well, I mean, how can Britain declare war on ISIS when it's deploying six aircraft to bomb ISIS in (laughs) Syria. I mean, um, so this is the um, bewildering, perplexing uh, nature of uh, many British parliamentarians. I mean, as I said, it's absolutely ludicrous. And that vote last year was not really about military action. It was symbolism for Britain to show political and moral support to America. Um, now, if we if we fast forward uh, to the recent debate in Syria uh, in the House of Commons about uh, the Russian military campaign in Syria, once uh, once again we heard uh, a number of MPs, in particular Conservative MPs, calling for uh, the Royal Air Force and the Royal Navy to start shooting down uh, Russian <laughs> aircraft in Syria. Well. I was watching that debate in the press gallery. I'm a member of the press gallery of the House of Commons. And the first thing that came to my mind was, well, in Syria, uh, Syria has some of the most potent, formidable air defence systems in the world, possibly the most effective, operated by the Syrian military and the Russian military, the S-300, the S-400, the Pantsir. Now, how are British aircraft going to penetrate those uh, those air defence systems. It's not going to happen. And if Royal Navy ships in the eastern Mediterranean fire cruise missiles, they would have to penetrate those air defence systems. So from a military point of view, what those British MPs were saying recently was just nonsensical. And of course, the only military in the world um, that could penetrate the air defence systems in Syria would be the American military, but it would have to be wave after wave after wave of American aircraft and cruise missiles. And of course, how many air- American aircraft would be destroyed? How many pilots would be would be killed? And that's why the Americans are not going to do it. But returning to the House of Commons, it was uh, it, it was a nonsensical debate, and I think it's. It, it once again reiterated this Anglo-Saxon sense of superiority, which is very prevalent at Westminster. And it showed also how so many British MPs, they live in cloud cuckoo land. Yeah, well, the, the, the sense of exceptionalism and yes. it's something that we can relate yes. to here in America as well. There's, yes. There is an inherent cultural sense of exceptionalism, especially when projecting one's uh, power globally. And, uh, and so with, with Boris Johnson, and I, I just looked at his appointment to uh, the foreign secretary position as one of the first acts of the newly unelected um, uh, Prime Minister Theresa May this past summer. And I thought that that was very telling for me because I thought this is one of her first big decisions. And then she puts a man like Boris Johnson into the foreign secretary position. And mm-hmm. that says a lot about this 
current administration. I'll call it administration, um, yes. but uh, the, the the May government, as it were, is it, but they're not governing, so they can't be a government, in my opinion, anyway. Um, the May administration to put Boris Johnson as foreign secretary is kind of like sending a message that we're going to have a dysfunctional um, foreign policy. We're going to be very bullshy in our communications. Um, we're going to be shooting from the hip and all these things. What else could it be with, with Boris in there? I, I think that there were internal conservative party factors at play. I think Theresa May put him in the role of foreign secretary to appease the right wing of her party. And I think that um, uh, Theresa May put him in that position as a way of saying, OK, Boris, you've got a lot of support within the Conservative Party. You're very popular at Parliament. You're very popular within the grassroots of the Conservative Party. Um, you have a lot to say. I'm going to put you in a senior position, the most senior position you've ever held in your life. Uh, if you make it, great. If you don't, that's your own fault, and that's the end. And I think that would be a way um, of Theresa May establishing her power, her control in the government. But it was a very, it, but it, it, it remains um, a very, uh, a very dangerous tactic uh, because here we have a foreign secretary who has broken all diplomatic protocols by calling for protests outside the Russian embassy. And it would be the same if he, if, if he called for protest outside any other embassy. Mm-hmm, uh, exactly. Um, and we have someone who once again hasn't really lived in the real world. Um, he's had a very, very privileged um, upbringing and he often talks about his political credentials, including the fact he speaks ancient Greek. And he is now foreign secretary and he is contributing to the ever worsening, deteriorating relations between Britain uh, and Russia. And as a result, uh, between uh, America and Russia. And I find it quite ironic how a lot of people in the British mainstream media, they uh, criticise Jeremy Corbyn for his image uh, for the way he dresses, for his suit, because he's not re- he wouldn't represent Britain well on the international stage. Well, look at Boris Johnson, not just in terms of his image, but look at his reckless behaviour, look at his reckless words. This is not someone that should be representing Britain uh, at the United Nations, uh, in Moscow, in, in, in Paris, in Berlin, etc., etc. You know, once again, it serves to demonstrate how the caliber uh, in British politics is very, very low. You can go back, for example, uh, just before the Falklands War, and who was Margaret Thatcher's uh, foreign secretary, Lord Peter Carrington. Now, put politics aside, these were heavyweights. These were real intellects. These were people who really had a lot of experience, tremendous experience of the world. And they always, or they tend, they, they had a strong reputation for thinking before they spoke. Today, we don't have that in British politics. And it's not just damaging 
for Britain's reputation in the world, but it's damaging for the United Nations as a whole. And do you, do you think this is kind of an overarching trend? Um, I've noticed this, you know, during the uh, Tony Blair, uh, mm. the Blair-Brown governments, that, that politics turned into kind of a celebrity uh, affair. And it was never like that in Britain, you know, from when I first lived in the country in 1991 and mm. forward. I noticed this change during Tony Blair. Yes. And, and it, it, the celebritization of politics, and also in the United States, this really came in with Bill Clinton. They, mm. Both of those are kind of that, those two vanguards kind of move forward simultaneously. And then from there, it changed. I think the, the people's relationship with government is, mm. is changing. The intermediary seems to be the media now in mm. a much bigger way than before. I don't yes. know what your thoughts are on that. I would agree with uh, with what you've just said. I think that owing to Britain's special relationship uh, with America, it makes Britain very suspect, uh, very susceptible to American influence, be it political influence, be it uh, economic influence, be it uh, influence from a society perspective, and in general. And there's an old saying, isn't there? America's problems today are Britain's problems tomorrow. And there's no question about it that while image has always been present in British politics, um, it has become such a massive factor today. And I can only put that down to the, uh, to, to the American influence. There is a real lack of intellect on the front benches in the House of Commons. There is a real lack of experience, and I mean experience of the real world. And it is, in general elections, for example, it is, it's more about sound bites. It's more about who's able to give a perfectly polished uh, presentation during a television debate. And look how many people become MPs today. They graduate from university. They work either Conservative Party head office or Labour Party head office. Or they work for a Labour MP or a Conservative MP. And then, though and behold, they become uh, nominated um, as, uh, as prospective parliamentary candidates. And they enter Parliament without barely any experience of the real world so it's uh, it's 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 quite uh, inevitable that um british politics is uh, or does have a very very low caliber at the moment um because of that image influence from america and also because that translates into uh, journalists being more interested in a, as i said a perfectly polished speech um, and what they're wearing and where they go to eat and what they drink as opposed to hearing policies and substantial policies and so in in, in america obviously this is um, on a whole nother scale in terms of uh it, this, the, the size of that whole sh- the show business aspect of politics um, which we're seeing now again uh, in a much bigger way this election cycle than ever before and i think the next election cycle will be even more and so forth probably kanye west will run for president in four years but what so how are you viewing this i know you've got your finger on the pulse of you know what the british press and what the political 
uh, bodies and people are thinking and looking over the United States election. How, how is this being viewed right now, this contest? Um, what are some of the main impressions um, that are being conveyed from the U.S. elections uh, in Britain and Europe in general? I think there is a very strong view, and I share the view, that um, uh, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton probably constitute the worst presidential candidates in modern American political history. I view the pair of them as appalling candidates and even more appalling human beings. And I suspect that Hillary Clinton is even worse. And there are, there, there are many things we can say about this, uh, this election. One of them is that you, ha- you have two candidates. One is a billionaire. The other one is a multimillionaire. Now, that, to me, signals, constitutes a serious problem. How about having a candidate who is not, um, who is not um, entrenched in wealth? How about uh, someone from an ordinary background who has lived an ordinary life, who has encountered many of life's problems, um, trying to survive on a day-to-day basis with a job, with a family and a salary, and yet you have a billionaire and a multi-millionaire. That's not healthy for for any democracy um, in the world. And then it's the, once again, the lack of intellect of the pair of them, the lack of respectability of the pair of them, the way they conduct themselves, be it during those election debates, um, on television, uh, at their rallies. I mean, this is a really dreadful uh, campaign. You know, I, I did watch uh, segments of those um, of those three debates. I think there were three debates, if I'm right. Yeah, there were three. Yeah, there were three debates, and um, <laughs> I saw. Donald Trump walking about on the stage, acting like <laughs> acting like a bully boy, and then I saw Hillary Clinton, who just reeks with deceitfulness. And when she was taking questions from the from the audience, she was behaving in such an obsequious manner to these people. There's no um, there's no credibility to either of them. And do you know, Patrick? I um in recent weeks, I just happened to go back to the debates during the 1988 American presidential election between George Bush Sr. and Michael Dukakis. And that's not so long ago. And once again, that was, a, that was a very bitter campaign. And once again, putting politics aside, just have a look at those two debates. They were serious. There was intellect present. They were respectful. Uh, policies were cited. And substance was um, was given to those policies by both candidates. Now, shoot forward to these two, and you don't have any of that. So I'm inclined to say, in, you know, in my humble opinion, that George Bush um, Jr., uh, Donald Trump, and Hillary Clinton are the worst candidates for an America, in an American president, presidential election, certainly in my lifetime, and I suspect at least in the 20th century. And the other point I would make about um, about Donald Trump is that he's never held elected office before. How can you have someone running for the president 
of America or the president of any country in the world or prime minister of every of any country in the world if they haven't held elected office before. No, American democracy is not to be idolized. It's not to be looked to, uh, for an example. It's actually to be viewed as what a democracy should not be about. It should not be about billions of dollars and millions of dollars and billionaires and multimillionaires and bully boys and uh, deceitful people. And Hillary Clinton, one of the frustrating points for me that hasn't been picked up in the British mainstream media was her role as Secretary of State during in regard to Libya and in regard to Syria. And I think she's a, I think she's a malicious individual. I remember when she announced that uh, uh, there would be NATO, that NATO had started bombing uh, the forces in Libya loyal to Colonel Gaddafi. She finished the statement. She was in Paris and she looked at the reporters and she said, right, let's party. We're in gay Paris. <laughs> I mean, to me, that was absolutely shocking. And then when Colonel Gaddafi was uh, was murdered, and, you know, I'm not saying I liked him. I think, I think he was a terrible human being, but he was the legitimate leader of Libya. And that's all that matters, uh, in my opinion. Um, but she made that dreadful comment, and c- correct me maybe, uh, Patrick, if I get this wrong, but she said something along the lines of, we came, we conquered, he died. Yeah, we came, we saw, he died. So... Uh, right. I think we've got that on our clipboard. Have you got that, Hesher, on on fast dial? I'm not sure. I but, only uh, have the one with all the techno beats on it. I don't know if I want to go that far. <laughs> no, we'll play that at the end of the show. All right. They did a dance remix of that, Marcus, by the way. They did a, uh, a house remix of that Hillary Clinton um, sound. It's very, it's very nice. No. Of state to make a comment <laughs> like that completely unacceptable, but also from a human perspective, what human being laughs at the death of another human being? You yeah. tell me. Yeah, it's very disturbing to uh, to, to listen to. I'm going to add to your uh, list of prohibitions for uh, qualifying candidates. You said you know billionaires and multimillionaires. I'll also throw in there in America, it's all lawyers. Uh, Maybe. The- the only saving grace of Donald Trump is that he's not a lawyer, um, but he, he's the only one. It literally every single in the Republican field and in the Democratic field, it's they're all lawyers basically. Well, there was no Democratic field, but yeah. um, that's another story. It's very interesting. Very interesting to hear. But um, the lawyers seem to have taken over politics, and uh, and I think they're all well qualified in the deceit category, as one might can imagine. But this is also a problem. You know, is that you have to be in a law firm to also make your way into political life as well mm. as as the track that you you mentioned before. And um, don't forget, Tony Blair was a lawyer. He was, and so was his uh, lovely doting wife as well. That's right. Well, she she's a judge now. I mean, uh, Tony was uh, was a barrister, and his wife was a barrister QC, and now she's a judge, high court judge. Judge Judge Blair, yeah, yeah, Drew Booth, uh, Sherry Booth Blair, yeah, um, yeah. So. But further, further than that, the, in terms of um, the public perception of this is Donald Trump ran, there was a field of 15 Republican candidates. And so this was kind of a strange and unprecedented mandate that he had on the right from voters. And he romped on the primaries um, mm-hmm. against what they thought at first would be the most competitive field ever that they were saying in the GOP, 
Donald Trump romped home with the nomination, despite having the, the media against him and so forth, and all the, the establishment, the RNC, uh, Mitt Romney, Paul Ryan, the speaker, all the never Trump, John McCain, all the rest of them. So in a way, this was kind of the voters saying, we, we, I, we're, we roundly reject uh, career politicians. And as, you know, like the old joke that if Mickey Mouse is on the ballot, he's going to get to, you know, a couple of million votes a year on every election. Donald Trump really was that Mickey Mouse character mm-hmm. in the primaries. And now it's, it's, it's developed into something else. And the other side, you have Carilla DeVille and who, who ran unopposed essentially. If you, I don't count Bernie Sanders because that seemed to be a stitch up from the beginning. But so this is a really, to me, it's a very dangerous place. It's, it's definitely a break from the past in terms of mm-hmm. politics, like you said, but mm-hmm. going forward, um, it's almost like it's kind of like uh, anything goes right now. We're, we're entering a kind of weird political paradigm in America where it's potentially anything can go. Um, Michelle Obama will, will most certainly, if Trump wins, uh, or even Clinton, she'll be running within four or eight years because yeah. it seems to be this dynastic, um, hereditary, Yes. Uh, political branding in America that seems to be the dominant paradigm. Mm-hmm. And that would go for the Trump children as well if Donald Trump wins. Um, so I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Well, I um, I credit uh, Trump and I respect Trump for one thing. He's honest. He's brutally honest. He's brutally candid. And I think that is very important in politics. And I think a lot of uh, Americans appreciate a politician being honest um uh, no matter how brutally honest it is at least you know where you stand with someone and i think that's why in britain a lot of people are fed up with politicians in general because they generally speaking say very similar things they they conceal um uh, a lot of their views and i think that um a, a, a percentage of the British public um, appreciate Jeremy Corbyn, the leader of the Labour Party, the leader of Her Majesty's opposition, for being honest, for being candid, for someone who, since having been elected to Parliament in 1983, has been totally open with their views, has never compromised their views, has never changed their views. And I think people um, appreciate that. And I think returning to uh, Donald Trump, I can understand uh, why people would uh, would turn to him as opposed to Hillary Clinton, because Hillary Clinton um, is very very vague on policies. She's very vague in generally everything that she says. Uh, whereas with Donald Trump, uh, you know where you stand with him. Now, I think what he says is populist. Um, I think it lacks intellect. But do I sympathise when people say, well, Marcus, I would support uh, Donald Trump because he's totally honest? Well, my answer is, yes, I I, I understand that and I sympathise and I would wish more politicians in America were as open and as candid as Trump and I would wish uh, more politicians in Britain were as open and candid as Jeremy Corbyn is. Yeah, yeah, uh, Corbyn, uh, he he reminds me uh, definitely of an old school um, politician and even if you don't agree with Jeremy Corbyn's uh, stances or policies or if you think he's too far to the left 
you can't debate that he's a man of integrity because he has stuck to his guns. And that, in terms of leadership qualities, and this is something that that I really believe, if if you're if you're consistent, even if it's way off on the extremes, but in terms of leadership is a requirement, um, you know, to be a head of state, you got to have what well, ideally you want to have some leadership ability. And if you want to have the people behind you, so Corbin has that, um, absolutely has that and, uh, some conviction as yeah. well. Cameron had, has that to some degree too. Um, I don't give him a lot of credit on many things, but I will say that, uh, uh the, the only thing that he did that really impressed me was when he lost the, uh, Syria war vote in, august 2013 he basically said i respect the uh, vote of the of this house and that's it end of story you know you could see that he he accepted defeat and he did it not he didn't throw a temper tantrum on the floor of the house like michael gove did yes you know so two two different characters there and so when michael gove was going for the leadership run i was laughing saying this is must be a joke or something back in uh Back in May, they were putting him up as a potential leader of yeah. the uh, conservative party. But the, so this this thing, the character issue is really important. And like you said, the caliber is very low right now in terms of the entry point. I think if you're if you're Machiavellian, you, you go really far quickly in politics. But that yeah. doesn't mean you've got character or leadership ability. Absolutely. That doesn't mean... Uh, that your constituents are going to benefit and if you take on a role within uh, the government or within the opposition that doesn't mean that the country is going to benefit in in my opinion it actually tends to mean the the complete opposites and um and getting back to uh getting back to the the other effect i think that we might be looking at and tell me what your opinion is on this because i think you're very well suited to comment on this there is a potential situation that has developed over the last couple of years as as the alternative media as social media as there's people gathering news and having interactions on a platform that's not linear in other words uh in britain it's the bbc and itv before they had a monopoly on everyone's thoughts and dialogue and national conversation and in america it's abc cbs cnn etc now we have a situation where we have the establishment, the political establishment, and the media establishment seem to be huddled together. We've seen this in America. I think there's some similarities in Britain too. So there's a whole, there's two different conversations: one on the street, and one in the the working man's halls and the pubs and just general communities. And then you have the establishment conversation, which they're churning constantly. And so. Could we have a situation in the election in three days in America very similar to what you experienced and what I experienced in Britain this summer with Bre- with the Brexit vote, where everyone was saying uh, 10 points in every poll is going to remain, remain. No, don't worry. We're not leaving Europe. There's, people won't. It's, it's, it's a done deal. And could and then the results come and it's uh, three or three and a half percent or margin leaving the eu so the brexit took the day a total surprise because the pollsters the media establishment the political establishment saying one thing the people thought another thing could we have the same situation here in the united states with the trump effect could the brexit effect be transferred to the trump effect well i think that uh if we take britain uh for starters uh opinion polls Uh, have demonstrated in recent years that they are just opinion polls and we shouldn't attach 
too much uh, importance to them. And I think that uh, many British people, and I suspect many American people as well, they want to give a bloody nose um, to, the, uh, to, to their respective establishments, the American establishment, the British establishment. In Britain, that really, really stems from the expenses scandal which uh, erupted in the summer of, uh, of 2009. And I think that this growing uh, public awareness in America and in Britain that there is a very large uh, detachment between uh, the elite and ordinary people, that awareness is really down to the fact that today in 2016 we have alternative media sources so uh, we have uh, programs uh, like your one patrick we have uh, russia today um, we have uh, press tv we have social media and that was all lacking in the 1990s and why do I home in on the 1990s? Because that was a very, very important period in history. That explains um, everything we are seeing today in the world in regards to how America and its allies, Britain in particular, is behaving. Because after the Soviet Union collapsed, America was the only uh, superpower. And it saw a golden opportunity to uh, become the uh, the leading power in the world and to sideline all others and to crush all uh, potential rivals. So we have the involvement in the former Yugoslavia and then we have uh, Afghanistan and then we have Iraq and Libya and so on and so on. But you see, people weren't questioning what was happening in the 1990s because we didn't have uh, programmes like your one. We didn't have social media but that's all changed uh, western media is not the force that it once was it is still the dominant force regrettably but it is a weakened dominance force and i think that explains why uh, partly that explains why uh, if we turn to america uh, donald trump has a lot of support because um as you say he's not from the political establishment but um I would say he's from the establishment in general because the American establishment, the British establishment, it's not, it's not just the political and military and intelligence uh, circles, it's also the business circles as well. So Donald Trump is part of the American establishment, but he's not from the political establishment. And so I think that um, this Tuesday uh, is is anyone's game and i just would not be surprised even though i think trump is uh is is behind by a couple of points at the moment in the opinion polls i just wouldn't be surprised if uh if he's crowned as president uh the following morning um because there is a growing awareness in america of the divide between the political establishment and ordinary people and um i think ordinary people in america feel this is an opportunity to have someone that talks like the everyday person running the show. And um, he can't do any worse than previous presidents. For example, George Bush, George Bush uh, Jr. I'm referring to. Yeah, yeah, I compare those two, uh, you know, pr pretty well, 
you know, pretty good comparisons. Um, maybe Trump even has more political experience than George Bush uh, Jr. did when he came into office. Yes. Um, and he had never been outside the United States, or uh, from, my, from what I gathered, he hadn't traveled he internationally. I think he went to Mexico. He went to, okay, he went to Cabo San Lucas for some tequila shots, maybe, as a, <laughs> during spring break. But, <laughs> but so it, it, it will be, a, if Trump, if a Trump uh, did carry the vote, it would be uh, unprecedented. Yeah. Uh, in terms of that, and it, of course, the country is going to be divided as well. But if Hillary Clinton takes the day, this will be a divided house and a divided country as well. So either way, I think we're in for uh, a really rough ride uh, yes. over the next twelve months. And I'm going to play this. This is from Pat Cadell. Now he was active during the Watergate uh, investigation, and so he's an old um, an old hand in the U.S. Uh, media, press, and political scene, Washington, D.C. So we're going to play this Pat Cadell clip. Let's listen closely to what he says. So he's really talking from that perspective, um, looking at what would happen if if Clinton uh, was crowned uh, in January. Go ahead and roll this clip. Listen to this. I think the problem is I went through Watergate. You know, I was, I was the youngest person on Richard Nixon's enemies list. I think I may be the oldest on Hillary's at the moment, but that, leaving that aside, I think that, you know, what we learn is that presidency was consumed when Watergate exploded. This has already exploded. We're talking about someone, and I think American people, if they think about it, will have a huge impact because if the day she's elected, this crisis starts. It will not go away. It's not going away unless she pardons herself or the president, if Obama pardons her, which would blow the country wide open. This, so we will be more divided than ever we will before. Be more, and Our nothing will happen. Will be paralyzed. And nothing will happen. The country in a moment of crisis. So that's really the choice. This will all be about her and the Clintons. And and what I agree with the governor. I mean, my God, what you're seeing here is a criminal enterprise, really. And we all know the foundation was always much worse. And it is about money, and it's about many things. But you know what, most of all, the country is tired of corruption. And the word that is not allowed to be spoken inside the beltway, and by the political leaders, is corruption in the country. You've got over 80-some right. percent of people believe that they're corrupt. Okay, so that... So that's interesting. You know, we, we talk in America a lot about, uh, you know, regime change in various countries and the need to uh, tackle corruption in the Sudan and Syria and how Russia's corrupt and Putin's corrupt. I hear every, uh, every minute of every day on, in, in our national conversation. But very little conversation. Uh, it's, not, it's not pleasant to talk about corruption in your own country is what I'm saying. And... And so we have a boiling point. This is like, how much can you contain? I don't know if you followed the uh, Podesta emails with WikiLeaks, but, you know, it's, it's endless. And it's almost like, where do, where do you start? And it's, it's a rare glimpse that Julian Assange has uh, given uh, the public at large, given them a rare glimpse into what happens behind the curtain. And a lot of people are horrified by it. And, and, and many people I know are still in shock. They, they literally can't comment on it. It hasn't died, you know, hasn't settled yet in their brains. Mm -hmm. um, how, how, are you, how are you guys seeing this? Because, I mean, you're talking about uh, basically while she was Secretary of State, the office was up for sale to yes. Bahrain or Saudi Arabia or Qatar. And they had knowledge that they were funding ISIS. That mm -hmm. came out in one of the emails, too, uh, a couple of months ago. Mm -hmm. um, 
So, so I don't know. It's going to be a tough. It's going to be a tough road mm. uh, ahead for a Clinton presidency. How can I approach this? I uh, yes, I mean, I, I think it's quite clear that uh, Hillary Clinton is uh, is corrupt in more ways uh, than one. Um, for example, the Clinton Foundation. Um, I would I would also say that corrupt has a wide meaning. I would say that uh, both Clinton and Trump are morally corrupt people as well. And I think that um, a lot of people in Britain um, <sighs> misguided, but they did used to view America as a uh, as a reliable country in the world, as a country. Um, which could sort out uh, problems, which could help to uh, uh, re-establish stability um, in various in various parts of the world. Now that was misguided, um, but I think that in recent years, in particular, uh, obviously since George Bush, a lot of British people have started to view America very differently, and that is in part due to alternative media outlets and due to social media. And I think that uh, Hillary Clinton, but also Donald Trump, is enhancing that view, that different take now of America that many British people hold. But um, I think we should be, you know, I think we should be fair to Hillary Clinton. And I don't mean that in a sympathetic way, because uh, I think she's a loathsome uh, human being. Um, But... Corruption didn't begin with her. I mean, we can we can go back, uh, we can go back to the Ronald Reagan presidency, um, and we can see what was happening there. For example, with with uh, with Iran and uh, the American army officer, and I've forgotten his name, Oliver Oliver North. Oliver yeah. North. Um, so uh, you know, th- there are many precedents. Uh, for this in American uh, in American politics, and the reality is that America is not a guardian of democracy and freedom and the rule of law and human rights. Quite frankly, that is an untenable argument, and in reality, it's the complete opposite. And I try to make this point this point as much as possible. If the Americans were sincerely committed to democracy and uh, the rule of law and freedom and human rights, then it would not have such a close strategic relationship and friendship with Saudi Arabia. And in my estimation, Saudi Arabia is the most despicable, the most wicked country in the world today with what it does to its own people. Oh, and they've spread their money around Washington uh, in recent years too. And money, buy, money buys influence. Yes, um, money buys influence. They're building buildings for for top universities, Ivy League universities, new schools of this, schools of that, and um, that goes a long way uh, in terms of buying influence in Washington. Israel has proven, you know, how how important it is to spread the money around if you want to uh, get a favorable point of view on all things relating to your country. Certainly they've done that. Saudi Arabia has learned from Israel, in my yeah. opinion. Um, yeah. So that both of them actually, before it was, it's like we've got more problems in America. Before it was just the Israeli lobby. Now we've yeah. got the uh, the GCC lobby as yeah. well. You know, yeah. so it's, yeah. um, it's tough. 
and and whoever becomes president uh, this Tuesday uh, will fall under the influence um, of, for example, uh, Saudi Arabia. I'm I'm quite concerned about how some people, for example, in Britain, um, uh, are saying that. Um, Trump would pursue a completely different foreign policy towards Russia and towards Syria. Well, these are the same people that said that Boris Johnson would pursue uh, a more constructive approach towards Russia and towards Syria. So I I think there's a lot of naivety surrounding um, Donald Trump. Yes, I believe Hillary Clinton in terms of foreign policy would be worse for world peace, for world stability. Yes, I do believe that. But Donald Trump would be bad. Uh, He's already made it very clear that he regards Iran as a terrorist state. He's already made it very clear that he wants to um, establish a hardline policy towards Cuba. Now, that's hardly conducive to world peace. And both Cuba and Iran have very close relations with Russia. Now, logic dictates that if he becomes president and he goes for Iran and he goes for Cuba that is going to bring him into conflict with Russia. Uh, yeah, it's kind of a bric-a-brac. The, uh, the Trump, Trump's foreign policy kind of reflects his, uh, his so-called advisors of the people around him, and it's just a hodgepodge of God knows um, who. Everyone's throwing their little bit in there, so it's completely inconsistent. And, uh, you know, like, you know, it's Cuba, you know, trying to win. He needs to win Florida, basically. Yes. So, yes. I mean, so I'm not surprised about that coming out. But um, the, the, the Russia thing, yeah, the, the, that's really important uh, to to many people. For me, that's that's very important to deescalate the anti-Russian rhetoric. Uh, because I think these, this is a very dangerous road for society to go down because uh, it can also be used to justify all kinds of wars. Plus, we have the situation in Syria. Um, but so in terms of Trump's foreign policy, he's also in the pocket of, of Israel. He's very much uh, Sheldon Adelson is 100 percent behind Donald Trump. Yes. Um, but the two of them, you know, speak the same language. They're in the same business, of course. But Trump did a major pivot on the Israeli-Palestinian issue uh, midway through the primaries. And so then the Israeli support came flowing in after that. And so, but he did attract a lot of people early on by saying he'd like to see peace, a peace deal struck in Palestine. That attracted a lot of libertarians and people over to his camp. And then he pivoted away from that, which disappointed uh, a lot of people. Um, yeah. But it, my my thing is this, and I'll, I'll I'll hand it back over to Marcus. But you know, uh, you have Donald Trump, who's basically a private citizen, businessman, no experience in politics. But then you have Hillary Clinton in public office as a public servant, and so I'm more critical of her, in, because I can be because she's got more on the record than Trump. He's lucky because he doesn't have a whole lot on the record, but. But I do put the caveat out, if Donald Trump becomes president, I will be equally as uh, tough on him, his yeah. policies, and his actions in public office. And yeah. I think what, with the press, it's become so partisan, the media, that uh, the, Hillary Clinton's not getting any level of interrogation from yeah. the mainstream media on any of this stuff. She's only getting it from the sort of the right wing. Yeah. But in, So it's almost like you could get away with anything, and then your partisan media surrogates are going to be like, no problem. We're still behind you. You know what I mean? That, yeah. That's kind of that's kind of the realm that we're in now in the West. Um, yeah. v- very partisan uh, in terms of media surrogates. Mm-hmm. Yes, I, I think once again that comes back to how uh, Trump 
is not uh, he, he's uh, he's not a part of Capitol Hill, and a lot of Americans, ordinary Americans, who have to live their lives day by day, uh, have a great deal of anger towards people on Capitol Hill, and quite rightly so. And I think that is how um, that that is one of Donald Trump's uh, strengths. But then we we need to talk about in relativity terms. It's one of his strengths. Well, uh, yes, that explains why people are, are supporting him. But still, Patrick, when I vote for someone, I vote for someone because they have exp- or, well, they have substantial policies. Um, they have intellect. They have a great deal of experience. Um, they know how to conduct themselves. Now, I, I hold the view, and I can't see how there's an alternative view, that Donald Trump doesn't have any of those. And I don't think Hillary Clinton doesn't have any of those either. And so I do worry that we that there will be an election, a presidential election this Tuesday, and a lot of Americans, a lot of people will vote for a candidate because they simply are not part of the uh, of the uh, of Washington's corridors of power. As I said earlier, I can understand why people take that line, um, but it's a dangerous line as well because you have to judge someone um, on a on a number of uh, on a number of things. And they have to be the complete package. Take Margaret Thatcher. Um, you know, she was the complete package. And I'm certainly not saying I admired her, but she was the complete um, package. You know, we can talk about Tony Blair in 97. Once again, I'm certainly not saying I admire him, but he was the complete package. He was at the time. Yeah, he was he was like the mercurial uh, he, was. The, the, he was like, it was, this was the future, you know, it, he was, he really came out like a sprite, you know, um, you're he correct. Did. Absolutely. He did. And, and I, I just, I, I think it shows that um, there's a very, very serious situation um, uh, in America at the moment uh, in the context of politics, whereby we have two candidates who really are not fit um, for office uh, I don't think they're fit to be senator or governor I don't think they're fit to be vice president and I think it's extremely alarming um, that two people of their nature um, uh, are, are running for uh, running for the White House and one of them is going to be is going to be president I think that uh, we should all be alarmed at that and I, I, I'm not meaning to come across as being melodramatic but I think it is alarming I, I said it was alarming when George Bush became president uh, George yeah. Bush Jr. became president and we know what happened under his presidency yeah look what look what he got up to yeah record yeah. speaks for itself so, so we were. I think. I think America. I think Western society as a whole. I don't think this is an exaggeration. I think they're at a cross. We're at a crossroads right now, uh, where the, you know old paradigms are clashing with intermediary, uh, transitional paradigms, and a lot of people. It's very difficult to know what's going to come out the other end. That sort of the predictability is is not there, and I think this is what scares a lot of people. This is the cause for a lot of trepidation. Um, they really don't know. So people will do in this in this situation, Marcus, people will do one of two things. They'll either flee to something that's safe, 
something mm-hmm. they know. Um, or they're going to, a vanguard will come in and want to basically smash up and redefine and rebuild, you know, the entire system uh, mm-hmm. on that basis. So that, mm-hmm. that's that's the struggle. I think Hillary Clinton, to me, represents the maybe the old um, traditional system of politics, um, and somehow Trump, maybe he's not the best vehicle for it. Certainly, certainly not. But he represents that that new vanguard. And these two things can't always um, coexist peacefully. Um, and this is this is the fear many people are going to have that either way, whatever the result is going to be, there's going to be some some level of social unrest um, yeah. in the United States. And we, we, we already saw bits of it over the last four years and yeah. before. But that that's the big fear. Um, so it's it's going to be. It's going to be very hard um, for a lot of people to swallow the result on this in three days. Yeah, and and it's a it's, it's a legitimate uh, fear to have, and I really would uh, I, th- I think in the short term I would hold both candidates responsible for having contributed to that, but uh, I think this goes back uh, a long way, and I think that um, in my view it really really took a hold under Bill Clinton. That's when that that's when I would really trace it to. Yes, we had instances with uh, with uh, George Bush Senior and Ronald Reagan um, and so forth, Richard Nixon. But there was something about the Bill Clinton presidency which was um, particularly dangerous uh, for America and especially dangerous uh, for the world. And we all know that uh, humanitarian intervention um, became the. Uh, the leading aspect of Bill Clinton's foreign policy. And that explains why today we have um, the situation in Syria with the situation in Iraq and the situation in Libya and also a diabolical situation in Kosovo as well. Yeah. Well, this is, this, I mean, this will probably be one of my final points here in this segment. But the, to me, the biggest concern that I have traveling around the world is the fact that the United States seems to be, Barack Obama is absolutely a poster child for this as well, a total ignorance of international law. Yes. And they yes. talk about international norms. John Kerry is ever, you know, always lecturing us on our values, Western values, and in Britain the same. You have yeah. Europe on, this, on the floor of the parliament. I've heard this many times from Cameron and, and everybody else. Our values are, and we have we have governments Specifically, Washington, uh, London, and Paris. I'll, I'll single those three out. Although there's many others I could throw in here, they're arming and funding listed internationally recognized uh, militant extremist terrorist groups in Syria. Okay, that's yeah. a violation of international law. Yeah. Uh, also, f- foreign fighters, even rebels in Syria. It's a contravention of the Geneva Conventions. That's the whole basis of the Nuremberg Principles. Mm. And the United Nations itself is founded on some of these principles. Mm. That, that to me, is the biggest threat. And so I'm looking for my leadership in the United States to say, whoa, hold on. We need to, there, there needs to be some agreement on international law because right now there seems to be they're completely going around it. The United Nations is completely corrupted. Um, it's, I think, under the thumb of the United States mostly. But so and then you have Russia trying to basically act in accordance 
with international law. But yet being accused of committing war crimes mm. uh, in Syria by British parliamentarians and others. Mm. There's a huge disconnect here. And that, to me, is the biggest danger that I see right now. Clear and present danger is that, because this could lead... We're, we're t- very close to a situation where the UN could become the League of Nations if, mm. if things were to escalate in the wrong way. That's, mm. that's my biggest fear. I'm looking for the le- leadership on this issue in Britain and in the U.S., and I'm not seeing it. Mm-hmm. I, I completely concur with everything you've just said. Um, yes, and uh, your last point about the United Nations becoming the League of Nations. Well, I think, you know, if you'd asked someone 15 years ago, 20 years ago about that, they would have said no, no, no chance. But I do think there, there is a distinct possibility uh, of, that, of, of that happening. I think that uh, international law is, uh, or the main violator of international law is America. Uh, and its allies. It began in the former Yugoslavia. That's something that a lot of people, they're not aware of. You know, when the West uh, encouraged and recognized the unilateral uh, declaration of independence by Slovenia, Croatia and Bosnia, that destroyed the sanctity of internationally recognized borders, which is a fundamental pillar uh, of the UN Charter and international law in general. Uh, And then, of course, NATO bombed uh, the Federal Republic of Yugoslavia in 99 without the approval of the United Nations uh, Security Council. And that has led to, as I said, Iraq and Libya and uh, Ukraine. Let's not forget Ukraine and um, and Syria. And in regard to the people who the West are supporting in Syria, which, you know, Patrick, they are Islamist terrorists they are islamist militants there's no question about that but you know what patrick even if those people fighting against uh, fighting against the syrian government even if they were angels even if they were angelic they were whiter than white it is still illegal to support them by any means it is illegal under international law it contravenes the un charter um, and that is a point which needs to be told time and time again now of course it's all the more dangerous, it's all the more malignant because the people receiving this support are uh, the people, ideologically speaking, are, are, are the same people, ideologically speaking, um, who, who have carried out Islamist terrorist attacks all over the world. And, you know, they're the ones who carried out the London bombings and they want to carry out uh, London-style bombings up and down Britain, and the British government is supporting these people in Syria. So when David Cameron accused uh, Jeremy Corbyn last year of being sympathetic to terrorists, I did think to myself, well, perhaps you should look in the mirror, Mr Cameron, because you're the one who supported Islamist groups uh, in Libya against Colonel Gaddafi, and you're the one who's supporting them in Syria against the Syrian government. And isn't that a violation of in, in America? It's absolutely we have laws about giving material support to known terrorist groups, and yeah. th- that would include arming them, obviously. But yes. in Britain, you have the same laws on the books. So, is it a case we now have our governments are in violation of their own domestic laws? I'm not even talking about international, just domestic. I um, I, 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 w- I I would argue that there's no question about it. You know, British uh, people in the Foreign Office or the Foreign and Commonwealth Office uh, like to say that uh, Britain conducts an ethical and legal foreign policy. Well, it couldn't be it couldn't be further from the truth because, as you said, they are supporting um, illegally armed groups 
on the territory of an independent sovereign country whose uh, borders whose interna- whose borders are internationally recognized by all UN members so yes it's a, it's a contravention of international law and it's also a contravention um, of of british law too but this is where the lawyers come in you see because the the lawyers have cleverly uh, shifted the labels and the names of the groups. So these these are moderate rebels over here. That's yeah. Free Syrian Army over there. That's Al Nusra. No, and and so it, it, when you're run by lawyers, they're very good at this shell game of mm-hmm. being b- basically uh, liability. Um, you know, and not not giving their out their exposure to liability by making sure that the right name is on the contract. So we are arming. We have British special forces. U.S. special forces cohorts with terrorist groups training them in Syria, mm. you know, in Jordan, in Turkey, yes. um, in, in our military, and and if or and contractors, but it's all the same because we're paying someone. Well, we're paying the bill, or maybe Saudi Arabia is paying the bill. That's another story. But yes. uh, so that's the that, that's where the problem lies. Um, they, they managed to snake out of this somehow. By playing around with the names of the groups, and I and they really go out, put put a lot of effort and go out of their way to get the labels right. I noticed politicians very very careful um, how they they say all these different names at different times, and I think there's a, a legal reason for that. Um, so trying to protect themselves and journalists, of course, then take it upon themselves to spin it, or mainstream journalists take it upon themselves to spin it. Because mainstream media is very much uh, part of the uh, of the establishment in Britain, uh, for example, you know all mainstream media in the UK, be it broadcast or print, follows uh, the line in terms of foreign policy of Ten Downing Street um, and the Foreign Office, and so it's down to mainstream media, it's down to the editors uh, to uh, to get the support of the British public for the British government's foreign policy course if in relation to uh, the invasion of Iraq, in regard to the uh, the bombing of Serbia, in regard to intervention in Libya, in regard to Syria. You know, the, the British politicians and, of course, the senior civil servants, the permanent undersecretaries, the, the people who, who run each government department, they're the ones um, who, as you say, come out with this labelling. They put this policy together it's then spun by mainstream media and if we focus quickly return to america uh do you remember uh in in 1998 the american state department listed the kla the kosovo liberation army as a terrorist organization yes and then at the beginning of 99 that was dropped uh, that was dropped to allow the American government to openly back the Kosovo Liberation Army, and then the British government did that, and we know where that led, where that led to. But the point is that the Kosovo Liberation Army um, was an organised crime uh, syndicate involved in the sex trade, the gun trade, um, and the drug trade. And uh, when Kosovo and Albanians started coming to Britain uh, after after 1999. It only took a few years for the Home Office, and these are not my figures now, Patrick, but for the British Home Office to say that 70% of uh, organised crime in Britain is being run by Kosovan Albanians. Yep. 
I think that says it all, really. <laughs> they, yeah, they took they, they took over basically. They took I, remember, I remember in the old days, Soho was run by the Maltese, you know, the Maltese <laughs> mafia. And then yeah. then after that, the Yardies took over, and yeah. then after after the Yardies, the uh, the Albanians showed up. Yeah, yes, Kosovan Albanians in particular, um, who of course had been parts of the of the KLA, and this yeah. is what British taxpayers' money is being spent on people who bring organised crime to the streets of British towns and cities. And today in Syria, British taxpayers' money is being spent on people who want to murder British civilians on British soil in cold blood. What a deplorable situation we find ourselves in today. And and uh, this is all being done under the aegis of uh, human rights. And I, there's pl- all these human rights organizations. I've I've written about this in the past, and I've I've given lectures on it too, uh, to to universities, to students, talking about the human rights industry. And so so all of this is being enabled by this call for human rights. You know, we need to protect the, you know, the right, the responsibility to protect. Okay. Yes. And so, but where are the legal, you know, where are the litigators? Because who is holding the government to account if, of breaking its laws? It seems like everyone's kind of, they've glossed over the illegalities of it in favor of this new uh, court of judgment, which is the human rights issue seems to trump the legal um, responsibilities of the government seems to be tr- trumped by the human rights. Well, and this is the dominant, this is the dominant uh, theme. Well, I mean, the, the human rights argument, of course, is a very, uh, is a very clever argument that, uh, that the American and British governments uh, use to justify um, them pursuing their geostrategic goals in the world. Um, it's just a cover, but humanitarian into or the concept of humanitarian intervention wasn't invented by the west uh, it actually goes back to nazi germany let's not forget leading up to the uh, the munich conference uh, which eventually gave the sudetenlands to nazi germany what was hitler's argument about why the sudetenland should come back uh, or, or should be part of germany um, he named humanitarian reasons in that ethnic Germans were being persecuted uh, by the majority Czech uh, population. So um, that was, of course, uh, that was deceit. Uh, but that was the cover. And Hitler employed it um, with propaganda. And, you know, 21st century or sorry, in the 1990s, when humanitarian intervention was resurrected, uh, the West uh, used it, um, and they used it very, very decisively. Um, they used it very decisively in Croatia, in Bosnia, and then uh, in Kosovo. But they got away with it uh, because there were not, at that time, alternative media outlets. There was no social media, and they can't get away with it today like how they used to. And in that, even though we live in a very dangerous world um, and in a very depressing world, there is some light, there is some hope in that the West does not have that sort of power it once had. Western media doesn't have the field to itself anymore. Yes, Western media, uh, yes, American power is going to remain formidable in the foreseeable future, but it is a weakened country. And uh, a, a world in which Russia 
uh, regains the power that it had in Soviet times can only mean two things, in my view, uh, a more stable world and a more peaceful world. And in that, everyone should be rejoicing in Russia becoming stronger and stronger. Yeah, well, there's a lot of advocates for, you know, a multipolar world have seen a unipolar world of the last uh, 25 years as being uh, absolute mayhem, Mm. um, total smash and grab culture in terms of geopolitics, Mm. but uh, and shock doctrines like the project from New American Century and so forth. Um, Yeah, so a, a, a multipolar world can be a healthy thing. This is a very hard sell, though in the United States because this this idea of American exceptionalism has been ramped up to even outgrow even the idea of patriotism into sort of, uh, you know, omnipotent world power sort of thing. And this is also new. This is, But this is, again, I think this grew out of the 80s, um, out of the Reagan uh, years as well. But um, it's uh, the, the, America would like Russia to return to the 90s. They keep talking. They, they said it. I think Fareed Zakaria said it on CNN today. Um, when when Russian democracy was promising, he said it was in the 90s, mm-hmm. you know, before Putin arrived, you know. But let me tell you, I, I speak to people about who were in Russia in the 90s. It mm-hmm. was absolute mayhem. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, and Boris, K- wasn't, but Boris Yeltsin was no Democrat. Boris Yeltsin. Um, used military force against the Russian parliament at the end of 1993, mm-hmm. and Boris Yeltsin falsified the presidential election result in 1996. It was the communists who won that presidential election. Um, Boris Yeltsin was no Democrat, and also Boris Yeltsin had no moral compunction in using military, in using uh, violence to achieve his aims uh, at home in Russia. That's something that Mikhail Gorbachev didn't have. Mikhail Gorbachev just couldn't use uh, force. He couldn't use violence um, to achieve an, an aim. But uh, Boris Yeltsin, he had no problem in doing that. So Russia wasn't democratic in the 1990s. Uh, Yeltsin was no democrat at all. Um, but he was pro-Western. He was subservient to the West. And of course, that, uh, that, that ticked all the requirements of policymakers in Washington, and also in London, we should say. Oh, the bankers loved it, too. It was, it was a neoliberal uh, yeah. um, fairground. You know, yeah. J.P. Morgan, everybody was in there, sent their little economic advisors in there, you know, their little Ivy League geniuses and quants, basically trying to, to basically suck what they could in terms of assets out of the Russian economy. Yeah. Yeah, it's, that was the glory days. This is what they hold up as the paragon of, of, of Russian democratic uh, achievement was the 1990s still in America, unfortunately. Yeah, but, um, well, then maybe they should go to Russia and say that to the average Russian person and see the response. They'd be very brave people to say that uh, uh, to ordinary Russians in Moscow, St. Petersburg or anywhere else, uh, anywhere else in Russia. Yeah, well, I, I think it, it would be nice. To, it would be good to see good relations between the West and Russia, if not anything, for the cultural exchange. I think when people go and visit and they share time in two different countries, they get uh, grow some appreciation for the people and respect for their cultures, their their customs, their food, their values. This is how you build bridges internationally, yeah. and, um, and, yes. and so that that's not happening right now. And sanctions is not helping either. Um, these things need to be lifted, in my opinion, uh, for th- people to move forward. And I think it would be better for Europe, too, 
So I don't know what the end game is while they're maintaining this strict uh, regime of sh- sanctions on Russia. I don't see what the benefit is. I, th- I think the European Union was very uh, under German leadership or de facto German leadership, we should say, was very hesitant about placing uh, sanctions on Russia in 2014. But uh, the Americans uh, applied the pressure and the Germans, uh, you know, the, the Germans relented. And also Britain. Britain was putting a lot of pressure on Germany to uh, to place uh, EU sanctions on Russia. And that's one of the uh, intriguing aspects of Brexit in that there are a lot of German officials and French officials which will be, who are happy to see Britain leave the European Union because they view Britain as a troublemaker. They view Britain as acting as a Trojan horse in the EU for the Americans, constantly relaying everything back uh, to uh, to Washington and constantly lobbying countries in the EU on behalf uh, of America. Now, if Britain does leave the EU, then there's a possibility, I think it's a small possibility, because America does have so much influence over Germany. But there is a possibility uh, that an EU minus the United Kingdom could start to slightly improve relations um, with Russia. As I say, it's... Um, I it's, agree. I it, agree. It's remote, it's remote, but it's it's a possibility. No, that very strong possibility, actually, because, uh, you know, there's a lot of BMWs that are purchased in Russia every year and Mercedes Benz just yeah. just for starters. So Germany has lost a big trading partner there yeah. and, uh, and many other countries, Spain, too, with this citrus and agriculture and Italy. They all want to lift the sanctions that you're right. I think it's Britain and the U.S. or it's yeah. the, the dominant uh, parties holding back yes. uh, pr- progress in that department. But. But Brexit, do you think it, you know, I said back when the vote happened, we got about a minute left, but um, I said that I, I didn't, I wasn't convinced that the, the, the conservative government was serious about leaving the European Union. I thought it was just a, a big uh, punch and Judy show. Um, and that David Cameron's best of both worlds document would be implemented, which is a renegotiated relationship with Europe. What Do you think that's that's what's playing out now? Uh, I know I've got a minute or something like that. Well, look, the, uh, the the Treasury's analysis of the consequences of Britain leaving the EU in terms of uh, a decline in GDP, a decline in trade, I think it's true. However, Cameron and uh, George Osborne, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, they simply took a credible analysis and said that there would be economic Armageddon if Britain left the EU, which of course is ludicrous. The British economy is not going to collapse. So I think the pair of them, um, I think they, I think they saw the economic imperatives of Britain being in the EU. I don't like the EU for ideological and foreign policy reasons. But I do believe that the rich countries benefit and they benefit to a large extent by exploiting the poor countries. For example, Bulgaria uh, and Romania and Slovenia and Croatia. But I think that Osborne and Cameron understood that Britain does benefit economically. And that's why they chose to campaign for Britain to remain in the EU. But they they discredited uh, the Treasury's uh, analysis by saying that, you know, minutes after uh, a Brexit, 
uh, decision, verdict at the referendum, there would be, as I said, economic Armageddon. Well, you simply can't say those those sort of comments. Um, you know, they're, they are unintelligent and they're very, very irresponsible. And I think that was to, a major factor as to why the British public, um, the English public, we should be more precise, actually voted uh, for the UK to leave the EU. Mm, you're right there. The good caveat, the English public, very important caveat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, mm-hmm. we'll be keeping an eye on that story, Marcus. Um, and that's certainly, I think it's going to really heat up after Christmas in the run up to March. Um, yes. so we'll keep an eye on that. But yes. um, we, we really appreciate your time, Marcus, and uh, for coming on the show. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of things we can talk about and we should. Uh, and we'll leave that for another time. But mm-hmm. uh, I just want to say thank you and also uh, give uh, sh- give us a shout out to uh, your website as well. And uh, if you have any books uh, that you're do, uh, coming out with or anything like that, people can look look out for. I will certainly do that. I thoroughly enjoyed uh, this discussion. It's been very informative. It's been very candid, which we were both saying is important in this day and age. And I thank you once again for having kindly invited me to come on to your wonderful program. Yep, uh, politics first editor and founder Marcus Papadopoulos. Check out his work there. There's a link on the show page. We'll see you soon, Marcus. Take care, Thank and you very we'll, much. You too. we'll be we'll be back after this break. Uh, we'll be connecting with our next guest in a few minutes. But before that, we've got some some breaking uh, clips to from the U.S. election trail. We're going to share with you after the break. This is the Sunday Wire. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. Stay right there. Well, you're Captain Buck Rogers, and according to your ship's log, you left Earth in 1987. That much I know. Tell me what I don't know. Well, if preliminary data holds up, it appears you have returned to Earth 504 years later. You are now in the 25th century. Buck, are you all right, Buck? Did you hear me? Buck? I think I want it right now. What a difference a day made. Twenty-four little hours What the sun and the flowers
talk about the real world for a moment, shall we? Where you're not some wonderful lone wolf hero, but you're part of a team and you play your position because that's what America is, Mr. Jeffries. It's one big team. Tune in Sundays at noon Eastern Time or 9 a.m. Pacific Time for the Sunday Wire for three hours of action-packed talk radio on 21stCenturyWire.com and AlternateCurrentRadio.com. Oh,